Well, good afternoon, and thank you once again for joining me for Business, The Law and You. Julian Campbell here. We've got another interesting show lined up for you this week. A bit later in the program, we'll look at our Harvard Business View tip, and this particular one is Gain Control Over Anxiety-Inducing Thoughts. We're also going to be chatting with Christina, who's back in the country this week, and we're going to be talking about thinking bigger. But right now, we're going to have a chat with Dr. John Woodward, who's an associate lecturer at the School of Law here in the Newcastle University. Good afternoon, John. Hello, Julian. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks once again for joining us. So we're going to look at an interesting subject, and that is uh, Newcastle was a, restora- a restorative city. Um, That's right. What, what is a restorative justice movement? Well, um, re- really, it's, it's uh, something that's been around for uh, quite a long time. Um, in its present form, it really gained momentum in the Canadian province of Ontario in about 1974 with a localised implementation of victim-offender mediation program was largely between uh, the native Indians and Western inhabitants there where crime rates were soaring and defied the best efforts of the good old British justice system to bring it under control. It's had a pretty astonishing result and um, it's been quickly um, adapted actually, firstly in the United States, I think, and probably to a lesser extent in the UK. We've now got about 300 programs throughout Europe and and, uh, I think it's about 175 uh, in North America and Canada. Now, they've had a go at it here in um, Australia, firstly in Queensland, which wasn't a huge success back in '92, but it's flourished elsewhere, um, most notably here in New South Wales in a project called the Wagga Project uh, and more recently in Canberra. Now, the Wagga Project was designed to try to... Um, reduce the level of recidivism in juvenile offending in that that, that area. And um, it's anyway, it's caught on, and uh, we've got a dedicated group of about probably 200 people, I guess, um, including academics, uh, the police, the judiciary, and, and business people here in Newcastle who are promoting the movement um, as, uh, you know, a... a uh, Restores Newcastle as a restorative city, which is which is what we're uh, we're promoting. So, um, so, so, what is restorative practice? Well, at its heart, um, it's 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 a I'll say a new way, but really it's quite a traditional way of thinking about how um, we think about others in the community, how we relate to other people, how we respect their rights, and hold people to account for dishonest conduct and, and decisions that are less than ethical. It's a, it's a relational-based movement which tries to steer people away from, um, you know, the adversarialism of the blame game and to understand that as a community we can all improve things uh, much, much more if we think positively about other people and we strive to do the best we can and make the best contribution we can. Um, when people do fall short of the mark, um, either through unacceptable social behaviour or bullying, uh, criminal conduct, we encourage um, a, fr- a framework in which we, they're brought uh, face-to-face with the consequences of what they've done and we invite them to consider how they might try to restore victims who have been adversely affected. So the notion of restorative means to restore 
um, to victims um, as far as that can be possible. Um, you know, whatever it is, whether it's attitudes in the workplace, um, uh, bullying or, or whatever the presenting problem might be, then, then the, the upshot of which is to, is to improve um, productivity, improve, improve relationships and, and make uh, the world a happier place in which to live. So, t- so tell now, us a bit about restorative justice then. If I can just, I should also tell you that, in so far as the restorative justice um, initiatives um, work, they don't seek to diminish or replace the traditional roles of denunciation and punishment, which the community right expects from the cause in uh, in cases of criminal behaviour. But what what restorative justice does is to seek to address and emphasise a supplementary role, um, which basically is firstly to hold offenders to account in a way that they can uh, see and come to appreciate um, the social impact of their offending and hopefully thereby reduce the likelihood of recidivism. And secondly, that um, we involve victims more actively in the sentencing process in criminal matters so that they can feel that they've got uh, an active role rather than just sitting on the sidelines watching a case run between the state and the offender. Now, what we're hoping is that the second um, dimension that I've just mentioned uh, will serve to help victims in some way and bring them some sense of closure to, you know, the dreadful trauma that some of these people suffer when they just don't understand uh, why it's happened to them, you know, why, why they've been the victims of crime. Now, I think one of the great benefits of, um, of this um, program is that uh, it, it can be applied at every level of human activity. You know, I've given you some of the immediate examples of how, you know, we hope it will operate in terms of specific criminal activity. But um, it's equally applicable in, in the classroom, um, at university, uh, in the workplace and in the company boardroom. You know, it's an attitude. It's a, it's a cultural change. And what we're hoping is that through a spirit of collaboration and open and respectful conversation, restorative justice practitioners are hoping to elevate our relationships with each other and address the scourge of the sorts of things that we're seeing, you know, gendered violence, bullying and thoughtless behaviours which threaten our society and cause so much damage and cost. Well, well, tell us yeah. a bit more about the uh, Newcastle Restorative City. I believe you had a meeting last night. Well, well, uh, we went. To, I attended a meeting actually of the Newcastle Institute Policy and Discussion Forum, which is a group that um, meets on a periodic basis to discuss general matters of interest to the community and, and uh, to make policy recommendations to government and so on. Now, at last night's meeting, there was a panel of restorative justice experts, and they included our own, uh, the Dean of the Law School here, Professor Tanya Sorden, um, Professor John Anderson, who's a criminologist, a world-famous criminologist, um, also from the University of Newcastle, and Dr Nicola Ross um, from the Law School here, who's uh, uh, undertaken the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the work involved in, in setting up the restorative justice program. 
And uh, we also had along uh, Superintendent Denny Sullivan, who's the commander of the Lake Macquarie uh, Police Local Area Command, and a magistrate, Neil Skinner, from the Children's Court. And they all, um, getting these people together, these people deal day in and day out with, with the fallout of um, criminal justice and, and other types of um, poor, um, you know, relationship between people and... and uh, and they are enthusiastic about this program, and, and it's my hope that um, through this program that we, we're going to be able to improve uh, the reputation and, and the and, and the relationships that you know that help to make us a, a community. And we do that by meeting with people in the various different levels. It's a grassroots sort of a, a campaign. Um, we're hoping to reduce. Crime rates. We're hoping to uh, reduce recidivism, and in the longer term, to address the needs also of people who, um, you know, who, who who are offenders as well. Yeah. So it's, it's a holistic sort of approach to these things. So, so that's that's my that's my hope, um, and I'm just coming on board with this. So. Um, I've still got a lot to learn about it, but, but that's, um, that's, that's my perspective on it. Great. Well, thanks very much for your time, John, and uh, we'll keep in touch with that one and uh, see how it's going. Terrific, Julian. Thanks, thanks for speaking with me today. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Dr John Woodward there from the uh, School of Law here in the Newcastle University. Sounds like a great initiative, doesn't it? Time to pop over and have our chat with Christina. Good afternoon, Christina. Good afternoon, Julian. How are you today? I'm very well. I hear you're back in the country. I am indeed. Although you're in Sydney, not in Newcastle. Uh, true. True. I'm, I'm a get about. How's that? We're, we're going to talk about thinking bigger. Yes, we are. And businesses, I guess, that get about. Um, so I've had the great fortune this morning of meeting with a with an SU colleague, actually, Usman Eftika, who um, has what he calls a business that supports micropreneurs. So he actually migrated um, to Australia in 2013 as a student of engineering, figured out um, that engineering is indeed a way to solve problems and not mm. only um, the mechanical or the engineering kind, uh, but had a look around and, and um, noticed that migrants, there was, a, there was an underemployment issue with migrants. So what he did was he, um, he developed an organisation that pulled migrants together and helped them, coach them in self-employment or coach them in joining teams, collaborating, uh, and came up with, um, I guess, a support system where they could form almost startups. So he's, he's worked with over 100 um, migrants. They've supported 30 startups, uh, and the whole thing came... He's now expanded into other countries, and the whole thing came because of that whole think-bigger mentality. So wow. if we can do this at a local level... What else can we do? So now they're in a couple of European countries, they're in Canada, and they're pushing this micropreneur. And, you know, if we look at the, the latest figures, um, I can't remember what date. It, it might be 2020, 2021. There's going to be something like 2 billion migrants, you know, um, and refugees happening around the world. And all these people need to become self-sustaining. They need to become employed. They need to, to establish a foothold and have a, have you know, a meaningful life and a contributing mm. life, um, and this is one way of doing it. So, bringing people together that can form teams, can form startups, can solve problems, and that's thinking at that bigger level. And they, um, as an engineer, because I'm an engineer, they always say that engineers make good good business people because they do look at the bigger picture, look at how to solve problems. 
Yeah, that's right. And I think engineers actually make fantastic innovators. So there you go. I didn't know you had an engineering background, oh, but there you go. Yeah. Chartered, chartered professional engineer, I am. Yeah, wow. Okay, <laughs> I think I might go and study engineering. <laughs> so you've got another, you've got another uh, uh, study there too, haven't you? Yeah, we do. So there's a, a couple of PhD students actually from Western Australia who started in Western Australia counting fish. They, they did their PhD around counting fish, and, and I kind of went, oh, great, counting fish. So as a PhD student, I went, mm, that's really interesting. Um, but they're counting fish because. Fish are 60% of our food source, so all this ocean provides 60% of our protein and our food source. And the figures for fishing, we have been overfishing since 1995. The, the numbers around fish peaked at around 1995. But in order to have, um, and as we've come to understand data more and more, in order to have greater impact and, and be able to come up with solutions and come up with those problems, you know, a la engineer, a la problem, um, to, in order to have greater impact and come up with solutions, we need, the more data we can gather, the better positioned we are to come up with um, solutions to problems. So they've actually gone out there and they're counting fish now they're using exponential technologies to count the fish. So once upon a time when they started, it was, you know, have the, have the drone underwater or the underwater camera and count literally how many fish swam past the lens, you know, pause, mm, how many mm. fish in that, in that frame, pause, how many fish in that frame. Now they're using um, exponential technologies such as sensors and many other, many other um, technologies available to help them count the fish because if they can then extend that, again, globally, they can go to... So the people that are fishing the most are people from lower socioeconomic third world countries. They're using fishing as a means of employment but also as a means of, of to gather food. If they can count the fish and we can identify where the problems are, we know what species to avoid fishing or we know in which areas to, to stop fishing so that we make sure that the ocean can replenish itself because if the ocean can't replenish itself... We can't that's replenish that, ourselves. Right. If you, you know, go back to that, 60% of our food source comes from the ocean. It's absolutely incredible. And I was quite stunned when I found that out. Mm. So, again, it's that think bigger. So the study started locally and now it's gone global. Um, and the impact that can have on the lives of so many people is quite incredible. So the impact, this ripple effect that's happening um, amongst businesses like these that think, A, beyond themselves, but B, beyond their geography is quite intense. And probably another example of that was uh, the announcement yesterday about Uber with their uh, helicopter-type uh, aircraft that they're working on designing and they're going to trial in Melbourne. So, sure. I mean, yeah. you know, cutting the distance from uh, the airport, which takes about 45 minutes to an hour in Melbourne, uh, will be down to 20 minutes with these specially designed air aircraft. So, you know, they, did, they didn't just stop at the cars. They now no. thought bigger. Yeah, but that, and, and that is exactly what Uber have been doing all the time. Yeah. So, you know, they started off as a car business, but now they're, they're into a transport business. So yeah. even, even the, the driverless vehicles, they're into driverless vehicles, transporting Uber Eats. You know, mm. that's another method of transportation, the helicopters. Mm. I can't wait. Anything that cuts down <laughs> travelling time with airports and everything else is a big tick from me. Right, well, we'll see how we go. Well, thanks for your time again, Christina. We'll have a chat with you again next week. Look forward to it, Julian. Have a great week. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Christina there with a couple of ideas of thinking bigger and uh, it's important that we continue to think bigger. And you're listening to Business, The Law Renew on 2NURFM, 28 minutes past two. Time for our Harvard Business Review tip. 
This particular one is gain control over anxiety-inducing thoughts. You're stuck in traffic. You're going to miss your flight and the game-changing meeting at the other end of it. Your presentation is poorly executed. You're not going to win the new client. There goes the promotion and maybe worse. If only these anxiety-inducing thoughts could be swatted away like so many pesky insects. The good news is there is a way to gain control over them. Bring order to the chaos by making a list. Write down what you need to do and plan to get it done. Tackle the distasteful tasks first to get them over with. Procrastination will only increase your anxiety. If your problem is not too much to do but too little, which can even be worse, seek out additional activities to stay busy and avoid brooding. Too much disorganised space, including mental space, can feel oddly oppressive. I know my son's going through that at the moment with exams here at the university. So it's important to make a list and um, keep yourself busy. Well, thank you for being with me for the past half hour. I hope you've enjoyed the program. We've looked at uh, Newcastle as a restorative city and it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Certainly there seems to be quite a momentum behind that and the importance of thinking bigger in your business. In a moment, Jane Klein will be back with you with more of your easy listening favourites. Next week, we're going to talk about the value of business awards to your business with Kimberly Claire Campbell from the Hunter Region Business Hub. We'll have our minute on innovation with Christina and some more business and legal news and views that might affect your business. I'd love your company again for business, the law and you at the same time next week. Till then, have an exciting and prosperous week. And as Oprah Winfrey once said, step out of the history that is holding you back. Step into the new story you are willing to create. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.